Father, thank you for um, your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, be with us now as we look into uh, what your word has to say about uh, being citizens uh, in a country. And um, Father, I pray you'd give me just the right words to say and uh, accomplish your purposes amongst us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I turned down the news the other day, and turns out that there's going to be an election coming up um, pretty soon. Who knew, right? And um, now, here's, here's a question. When a big election is coming, um, what is the church supposed to do? Uh, let me give you four options of what many churches will be doing. One, um, they could just ignore it because, uh, well, we certainly don't want to appear partisan um, and uh, holding up one candidate over another that is uh, going to offend certain people. So they say absolutely nothing. Let's just ignore it. Nothing to see here. Let's move on. Okay. Um, but boy, that seems... That seems pretty empty. I think people want to hear at least something, some guidance from the church. Um, so I don't think we can just ignore uh, this huge election that is coming up. Another option would be to go to the other extreme and endorse a candidate. Actually have a picture of somebody up here and come up with a big list of why you should vote for that candidate. Um, I think most of you would say, I don't want my church endorsing a candidate. Um, other churches will do this. They'll insult you. <laughs> uh, you better vote for this candidate, or how could you even call yourself a Christian and shame you uh, into voting in a certain direction? And by the way, um, speaking of not wanting to insult, you may be shocked that People uh, in the same church may not see things politically exactly the same way you do. And um, I would just say realize that uh, not everybody views things the same way. Not everybody comes from the same perspective. And you are to treat one another with Christ-like love in this highly uh, emotional time of year. Okay, so um, please realize that not everybody's on the same page and we don't want to insult one another. Um, I think the fourth option, though, and here's what I want to do today. I want to educate us not on who to vote for. That sounds good. Those are good. <laughs> well, those are those veggie sticks and those are, um, they have spinach and no, they're good. I'm endorsing the veggie sticks. <laughs> All right. Um, I don't want to educate us on who to vote for, though that may disappoint some of you. Okay. Um, I don't even want to give you a list of issues today. Because, really, if we say we don't want to endorse somebody, but then we say, here are the issues you need to consider, isn't that a backdoor endorsement, really, in that? Um, by the way, the, the time to be very clear on moral issues 
is not the Sunday before or a couple Sundays before an election. It's every time you open the Bible. And I think people would know where Valley Brook stands on certain moral issues loudly and clearly. So now is not the time to do that. But here's what I want to do today. I want to kind of give us a big picture theology of Christian citizenship. What is this whole mixture of church and state and what can we do and what can't we do and what should we do and what shouldn't we do um, from a big picture perspective? Right? So I'll just entitle it, um, Frequently Asked Questions About Christians in Government. I'm just going to ask some questions and we're going to see uh, biblically how to respond to these. All right? So first question would be this. Isn't it illegal to talk about politics from the pulpit. Right? Isn't it? I mean, aren't you treading on thin ice just even talking about politics from the, the pulpit? Well, um, it's interesting to hear where people are coming from on that. You can't do this, you can't do that. And you say, well, where do you get that? Well, I've heard that it's, you can't do this. And you, well, let me clarify where that came from. In 1954, Congress amended the IRS code, the 501c3 for for tax-exempt organizations and churches. They added an amendment to a tax code. The amendment was offered by then-Senator Lyndon Johnson, who went on to become president when Kennedy was shot. And here's what it said. It stated that nonprofit tax-exempt entities could not participate in or intervene in, including the publishing or distributing of statements, any political campaign on behalf of or in opposition to any candidate for public office. So legally, uh, 501c3 organizations cannot endorse a candidate. All right? Or you will lose your 501c3 status and you will be taxed. Okay. Uh, Fun little fact for you. Apparently, Johnson had proposed this amendment, which passed on a voice vote. You know how those go? All in favor? All opposed? Oh, and then the the person in charge decides who he thinks said more. Okay, so on a voice vote, he he proposed it to get back at two nonprofit organizations that had vocally opposed his candidacy for the Senate. So it was a vengeance voice vote. And that's why churches are not allowed uh, to endorse a candidate anymore. Prior to that, I mean, you look at the history of preaching. um, There were those who strongly preached for or against the Revolutionary War, for or against the Civil War and the candidates uh, or or slavery, um, for or against. So um, issues and candidates, it used to be that preachers took a strong stand one way or another. Now, uh, another interesting fun fact for you. The Alliance Defense Fund, which is kind of like the Christian counterpart to the ACLU, okay, um, since the 2008 election, they have purposely been seeking out pastors who will preach and even endorse a candidate, and then they take the sermons and they send them in to the IRS, picking a fight. Um, Remember in the movie Braveheart, where Mel Gibson 
is going to ride his horse out to the, he's, he's on uh, the Scottish side, he rides out to the British, and one guy says, where are you going? He goes, to pick a fight. So what they're doing is they're saying, hey, this church endorsed a candidate. Um, sue him. IRS hasn't made a move. Why? Because they know they'll lose. Because the First Amendment says this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So Congress can't say, hey, we're the United States of America and you must be Catholic. Or you must be Anglican. Or you must be Muslim. Or you must be atheist. They cannot do that. Uh, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And, you know, in essence, what, what the church should be able to do is preach on issues, and if they feel that they can endorse or not endorse a candidate, I don't know how smart that is, but they should have the freedom to do it, and this organization is saying, come on, let's bring it on, let's bring it to the Supreme Court and, uh, and decide this thing, because we think this law is unconstitutional. Okay. Now, I am not today going to endorse a candidate, so some of you are nervous, okay? Um, I, I'm just not going to do it. Like I said, the time to uh, preach on moral issues and so forth is, is past. Um, so don't, don't worry, I am not going there. But I think you need to kind of know the legal uh, background behind why it's illegal. Right? Now, second question I want to ask, is it wise to talk about politics in the church? Okay, one thing, is it legal? Second question, is it wise? All right. Um, let me give you four statements. Okay, and don't jump to conclusions until you hear all four of them. Statement number one, there is wisdom in not becoming embroiled in secondary matters. All right. Um, remember, a while back we looked at that passage in Matthew's Gospel where the question arose, does Jesus pay the temple tax? There was a tax that uh, all Jewish males had to pay that went to support the maintenance and the, the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. And the question was, hey, let's trap Jesus on tax evasion and make an issue of whether he pays taxes or not. And um, uh, so the question arose, does he pay the temple tax? And Peter uh, went to Jesus, and Jesus basically said this, Who's the temple for? God. I'm the son of God. When a king levies a tax, does the prince need to pay the tax? The uh, implied answer is no. The, the sons are exempt from the tax. Point, I don't need to pay the temple tax. I, I have a political argument here to avoid paying the temple tax. And then he says, oh, by the way, pay the tax. It's not worth it. He says, so, so as to not offend them. Are you afraid to take a stand and not offend? You know, some, sometimes it's not that you're afraid. Uh, sometimes it's just it's not worth it. Because Jesus came to die on a hill called Calvary, not on the hill of tax reform. Okay? So um, Jesus was right, and he said, I'm going to choose not to make an issue. Let me give you another example of this. Um, Luke 12, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, 
tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Apparently, these two brothers had some conflict over uh, one was keeping more in the inheritance. And Jesus, he's God. He should have... Uh, he, he should have a wise opinion on this. Jesus, settle our family dispute over money. Look what Jesus says. But he said to him, man, that's maybe where we think he's a hippie. Man, you know. <laughs> man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he doesn't take a side. Is he in all his omniscience? Would he have been able to say, this guy's right, this guy's wrong? Yes. He said, I'm not going to enter into that secondary issue. I am here to save people from hell, not to choose sides on who gets the inheritance. Okay? So we can get sidetracked on a lot of issues. So there's a time uh, when it's just smart to say, we're not going to get embroiled in secondary issues matters. All right. Second point. The church is not to be perceived as an extension of a political party. Why? Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he sits enthroned over the entire universe over all power and all authority and all political leaders. Therefore, the church, his representative here on earth, needs to be seen as in authority over all kings and rulers and presidents and congressmen. Jesus does not bow and become subservient to any political party or ruler. Jeremiah, the prophet, was called at a very young age to preach. And he said, this is Jeremiah 1, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth, I am only a young man. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Because you, young man, I have put my words in your mouth. You are not under the authority of any political ruler. You are over the authority. Now, the problem is this. Once political support becomes the highest goal of a church, it's much more tempting to compromise on biblical truth. Because if we just shave off the edge here and shave off the edge here, then uh, that, that will allow us to support this candidate or that candidate. Okay? Um, I want to be able, regardless of politics, to still be able to boldly say something like, um, I love Mormons. Mormons are moral. Mormons are nice. But Mormon doctrine teaches works salvation. They believe in a multiplicity of gods. 
and it will damn your soul to hell. If my highest goal is to endorse a candidate, and by the way, that's not a lack of endorsement or a pro-endorsement, it's just I don't want to have to withhold truth about eternal matters for the sake of winning an election. Same is true of a politician who might hold to liberation theology or who is an atheist or is a Jehovah's Witness or believes in Festivus. Isn't that what George Costanza came up with? Yeah, you know. <laughs> okay. Well, we don't want to say anything that might be down on Festivus because, you know. All right. So when politics become number one, the gospel can become number two, and people can go to hell. Right? See the balance here. Right? Third point. Political labels can become barriers to the gospel. Now, honestly, okay, how many times have you been driving your car, and you're just having a good old day. You've got Moody on. You're listening to Elizabeth Smith. And, you know, you go, how come her husband is never on? You know? I know my place, right? Um, singing a saw hymn. And then somebody passes you with one of those bumper stickers from the guy, endorsing the guy that you don't like. And all of a sudden... You are thinking evil thoughts of that. How could they vote for that? How, and you want to, like, ram them off the road. Right? Okay. Um, now, what if you came into a church and, yeah, the gospel's there, but it's always about this issue or that issue, this political candidate or that political candidate. It can become a barrier to you hearing the gospel. Okay? You know, um, Jesus brilliantly avoided political traps. Now, um, he didn't avoid ethical issues, moral issues. He was not afraid to speak truth. But when he saw that he was being set up to make a political choice just to trap him, he outsmarted them. Let me give you an example here. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, this is interesting. Pharisees were Jewish loyalists. They hated Herod uh, because uh, he oppressed the Jewish nation. So they were anti-Herodians. The Herodians were Jews who said, come on, let's get along with Herod. And they were pro Herod. So here we have two opposing political groups teaming up to capture Jesus. All right? They're enemies, but now they have a common enemy, so let's become friends. Right? So they said, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearance. Do you see the setup? We know you're going to speak the truth. You aren't afraid to take a stand on anything. Butter him up, butter him up. Okay, he just sees the trap being set here. Tell us then, what, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, what's the trap? 
If he says no, the Herodians go running to Herod and saying, he's a tax evader. He's promoting a rebellion against Rome. And they get him in political trouble. If he says um, yes, if he, if he says no, okay, he, he is offending the Herodians. If he says yes, then the Jews who hate paying taxes are going to say, see, he's one of them. So either way he answers, he's going to lose support. He's going to, they're going to put him with one side or the other. So how does he answer? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? It's always good, by the way, before you give the answer to say, you know, I can cut through your motive here and see what you're trying to do. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Next question. Yeah, pay your taxes, but don't give your heart to Caesar. Wow, he didn't, he said truth, but he didn't take a side. Ooh! And then it says, when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Man, he's a smart guy, they said. Okay. Um, Now, from what I've said so far, is it wise to talk about politics in the church. So far, you might think, oh, avoid it at all costs. Let me give you a fourth statement. Political issues and moral issues overlap. Okay? It'd be nice if everything was just either a political issue or a moral issue. Right? Then you go, okay, we'll just, we'll just talk about um, moral issues and not worry about political issues, and everybody's happy. But the reality is not only are they not mutually exclusive, but they do overlap, and I I would say not just slightly, in a big way, they overlap. And I want you to, to hear that just because a moral issue is strongly preached in a Bible church, and that same moral issue is a hot political issue, that doesn't mean the church is endorsing a candidate. It is just being clear on moral issues. And some people will hear that and go, they endorsed this position. They're raving Democrats or raving Republicans. Really? Did they say that? Well, they preached on that issue. We have an obligation and a responsibility to be clear on moral issues, and they overlap. So be careful that you don't read into um, a strong position, uh, a, a political endorsement. Okay? Now, um, is it illegal? Yeah, it's illegal to endorse a candidate. Is it wise to endorse a candidate? or uh, become overly political, I think there's a lot of caution. But we also have to proclaim truth and take stands on moral issues. But now, third major point, isn't the Christian's calling to save souls not pass laws? Now, here's the position of a lot of Christians. They go, our calling is to save souls, 
And, and any political involvement or political, um, uh, you know, even being concerned about politics, even voting is worldly, right? So I'm just concerned about spiritual things. I'm not concerned about politics or voting, right? Well, I do believe that the church's number one priority is the salvation of souls, What does it profit a country to have righteous laws, but its citizens die and go to hell? Okay, so I think we need to have our priority straight. Okay, but I look at political activity and voting not as a way to save souls, but as a way to be a good Samaritan. Yes, we are called to go into the world and proclaim the gospel and save souls. We are also told by the parable of the Good Samaritan to love our neighbor. And just because loving our neighbor doesn't save their soul, it doesn't mean we shouldn't love our neighbor. You know, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. There was a guy who was beaten and left for dead and robbed on the side of the road. Two religious people saw him and walked around him. They didn't want to get involved. But the Samaritan came and revived him and sat him up and stepped back and he preached the gospel to him and then he went on his way. No. He picked him up. He carried him to the inn and he took care of him. And Jesus said, do likewise. I look at certain laws, certain direction as a way for us to be good Samaritans. It's not going to save their souls. Yes, there's a danger of it getting in the way of the gospel, but there are are just certain things, certain laws that should be passed for the greater good of all the citizens. So um, I look at voting and political involvement as a way to be a good Samaritan. Okay. Now, um, some people would say, but still, politics is of the world. Sports is of the world. Politics is of the world. Uh, Just avoid all that and just read your Bible. Okay. Well, let me give you a little bigger theology. God has given the world three institutions. The church, the family, and the government. Government is good. I didn't say politicians are good, right? But government, the concept of government, it brings order to a chaotic society. So here in Romans 13, it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He's talking about, by the way, his governing authority when he wrote this was Nero, who chopped off his head, Paul's head, right? So let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, And those that exist have been instituted by God. Government, even corrupt government, the concept of government has been instituted by God. For for he, the governor, the king, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. 
For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And I've pointed this out before, the fact that the sword is brought in, that's an instrument of death. I have no problem with a strong military and capital punishment. Because, okay, I brought up an issue. That's just an illustration. But he is God's servant, and he uses the sword... For good and uh, to reward good and to punish evil. So, what you need to see is this God keeps order in two ways. One, internally, He changes hearts with the gospel. That's the best way to do it. But not everybody believes in Christ. So a second way to keep order in society is not internally, but externally with laws and reward and punishment. And that is a good thing, not a bad thing. So you could say that the institution of the church, is, and we who are believers, our primary thing is the spreading of the gospel. That is a God-ordained calling. But we are also citizens And government is a God-ordained institution, and the passing of laws also prevents the spread of, of, of crime and harm. And it's a good thing, and we need to uh, see it as that which pre- uh, preserves order in society. Okay, So don't just write it off uh, as, oh, that's worldly. Now, Christians uh, have been involved in political activity to bring about major social reform in the last 2,000 years. Just a a little list. Early Rome, the Christians um, worked with the government and uh, made it illegal for infanticide, abortion, the gladiators who used to fight to the death, that was made illegal They used to brand the faces of criminals. That was made illegal. Uh, They brought about prison reform. In India, uh, not too long ago, when a man died, the wife, the widow, was burned alive. Christians brought about that change. In China, um, a woman was cute if she had small feet. So they bound their feet, very painful, cripple, crippled them. And Christians said, um, that is wrong. And they brought about that reform. In England, um, William Wilberforce brought about the, uh, the end of the slave trade politically. And in the United States, uh, slavery was a political, uh, it was put to an end politically. And Christians were very involved in passing these laws to reform society. Okay, Um, So, isn't the Christian's calling to save souls not to pass laws? How about the Christian's calling is to save souls and to be involved in the passing of laws? Okay, Let me give you a a fourth one, fourth question. Doesn't the Bible say persecution is coming? Um, Hey, we're going to enter that tribulation, that Antichrist is going to track you down, he's going to brand you with a 666 store up, get your bunker, hide out. Uh, As I've heard certain uh, theologians say, why polish the brass on a sinking ship? We're on the Titanic, it's all going down. Um, Why polish the brass? 
Well, let me give you just a quick, and this may shock some of you, okay? But let me give you a quick lesson on end times, okay? Um, first major thing, Jesus is going to return. That's his return right there, okay? Now, most of us within the evangelical church have been brought up with this theology, that this is a time of tribulation that's going to happen right before Jesus returns. Now, some people think we'll be raptured before, some in the middle, some at the end. Okay, we won't even get into the rapture. But a time of tribulation is coming. Um, they would say we're, pro we're right here on the verge if we haven't entered it already. Um, store up, man. Get ready. And why, why even be involved in politics? We're, we're the ship that's going down. Now, are you aware? Okay, this is called premillennialism. All right, this is what MacArthur is and what Moody Bible is and, and so forth. Now, are you aware that there's another position called preterism? And you go, who holds to this crazy theory? R.C. Sproul. Okay, Sproul, the... Uh, I think the, the, the two, the, the three most consistently godly pastors on the planet today are MacArthur, Piper, and R.C. Sproul. Okay? Um, Sproul holds to what is called preterism. When he reads Matthew 24 and it talks about uh, the time of the great tribulation and uh, abomination of desolation, he would say that's when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. That's all fulfilled. And we need to be concerned about looking for the return of Jesus and spreading the gospel, not fearing the, uh, the tribulation. You have never heard of that. Well, I'm not saying it's right. In fact, I don't agree with it. But somebody as godly as R.C. Sproul can look at the same scripture as you and go, I don't think we need to be obsessing over a tribulation. All right? Now, there's another view. This is called idealism. Idealism says that when Jesus in Matthew 24 speaks of the great tribulation, it's talking about the entire church age. And... There will be times of great persecution, and then there will be times of revival. And this, this view kind of, you know, you've, you've got to deal with this question. The Bible talks about tribulation, but it also talks about Jesus returning, and life is going on, people are getting married and given, being given in marriage. and It seems to be like he's coming uh, a at a surprising time. Might this be a way to look at it? The whole... Church age is a time of tribulation, and Jesus might return during a lull when things look wonderful. Okay? But let's even assume that premillennialism is true, that before the Lord returns, we will enter into a worldwide time of intense tribulation. If you were living in Germany in 1930 and then the 40s, wouldn't you be absolutely convinced that Hitler was the Antichrist? Did the world end? No. They were wrong. If you were living in the 1500s and you were Martin Luther, wouldn't you be convinced that the church 
was being led by the Antichrist. In fact, he said the Pope was the Antichrist. You know, that, wouldn't you be convinced that the church had become so corrupt that this must be it? wasn't. If you were living in Europe during the time of the Black Death, where one-third of Europe died, one of the, the uh, plagues in Revelation talks about a third of the world dying. I mean, wouldn't you be convinced that this has to be it? You could sell a lot of prophecy books in any of these times. So how are you sure this is it right now? How are you sure? 100% absolutely sure. There could be, rather than us hunkering down and bunkering down, there could be another great revival coming. Let's be about the business of spreading the gospel. Okay. Now, let me, let me finish up with this. Five, number five is um, some considerations as you head into the next couple of weeks. ABC. Um, by, by the way, I, I like to, to put things in monomic uh, order. Um, when somebody calls and says, hey, pastor, will you marry us? I go, oh, all right, I've got a little ABC list of rules that we're going to go through. First of all, um, that you abstain from sexual activity. Usually they hang up then. B, that you are both believers in Jesus Christ. C, that you'll be willing to go through counseling um, so I just want to lay it right out there, ABC. Okay? Let me give you some ABCs as you, you uh, enter into this, this next couple of weeks. Account, A. Realize that we will all give account for every decision we make, especially those decisions that have great impact and great influence upon others. Okay? The, whether you ate the cherry Pop-Tarts or the apple Pop-Tarts, you'll give an account for that. But the bigger thing you'll give an account for is how you raised your children because you have now influenced other human beings. Okay? How you vote, you will be held accountable for how you vote. Ecclesiastes, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You say, hey, nobody knows how I voted. I'm in the, the voting booth with it. No, God knows how you voted. And uh, what I want you to do is to know the issues and the Bible well enough that you can go in there and vote in such a way that you can say, I have a totally clean conscience that the choice I am making is biblically informed, informed of the issues, and I, I believe I can stand before you, Lord, on Judgment Day and give an account that this is a godly choice. Can you do that? Right. A. B. What's best? I don't, I don't mean what's best for you, I mean, what is the best, the fairest, the most correct direction for everybody in the country? Okay? You know, there are people who go, yeah, I disagree with 80% of what this person stands for, 
But the 20%, I get some candy out of it, so I'm going to vote so I get the benefit. That's just selfish. To vote for your benefit as opposed to voting for what is best for the entire country. You're going to give an account, vote for what's best for all, and then see Christ's mind. Uh, And where I get that phrase is 1 Corinthians 2.16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. The minute you get saved, you actually get a new mind that is able to perceive Christ and understand his word. Now, he doesn't, it's not like a zip drive where he puts information in. You also have to study and you have to renew your mind. As Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words... Are you renewing your mind with what the Bible has to say? Are you making decisions based on Christ's mind? And and let me just say this. Are you aware that $2 billion has been spent um, combined by both candidates to persuade you that the other guy's a jerk, and uh, there's slogans, and there's name-calling, and there's gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Are you able to cut through it all with the mind of Christ and prioritize what would Christ say is the most important and not be uh, distracted by all the lies and the spin and the sloganeering, what would Christ say? Okay, Along those, those same lines, um, I was listening to a, a radio show the other day, and um, it was a guy interviewing a Presbyterian pastor. And the question was, Why are you a Presbyterian pastor? And this guy was a very liberal pastor who basically believed, eh, all roads lead to to God. So he wasn't a preacher of the gospel. And the guy said, well, why did you choose Presbyterianism? He said, oh, it's what I was raised in. Really? So that's the extent of why you're a Presbyterian versus a Baptist versus a Catholic? It's just what I was raised in. And some people were raised in a certain political vein. It's just the way we were raised. That doesn't cut it. The mind of Christ says, I am going to redo everything. How I view work, how I view marriage, how I view ethical issues, how I view political issues. It's the mind of Christ, not just, well, this is the way I was raised. Are you willing to say, I will vote in a way where my mind, which has been reprogrammed by the word of God, where my mind says, I will vote to glorify God, not just what I have been raised. Okay? 
then the ultimate thing we need to realize, and, and, and let, me, let me close with this. Let's say your guy wins. I still have grave concerns with where we are as a country. Um, I still think the ultimate thing we need is a revival. Spiritual revival. So don't take a political victory as a spiritual victory. I think just looking at where we are right now as a country, I think we as Christians need to be more concerned than ever before about getting the gospel out and making Jesus the issue. All right, let's pray. Father, we pray for our country. We want it to be a country that glorifies you. We want righteous laws, righteous leaders. And um, Lord, I pray that you would have your way, that you would be glorified. We know, Lord, um, that vast amounts of people are not following you. And uh, we pray for your gospel to spread. We pray that we would not become um, sidetracked from the spread of your gospel uh, with all these political issues. And um, I pray, Lord, that you would bring about righteous laws, righteous leaders, and the spread of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.